Identity Mission Impact. We help people find our identity in Jesus and their place in his mission to impact the world through the gospel. That's our mission statement, right? It's the language that we use around here to try to describe and inspire us to be a particular kind of people. Not just like you and you and a few of you as individuals, but us together as a collective or as a body. That we would be a people with this high, high value on ourselves. That we wouldn't just come together and come into a room and have some spiritual lofty thoughts because we've been saved, but that we would come together and as a people that we would see ourselves as people who participate and embody and live out the missional way of life in the way that Jesus patterned for us and the way he instructed us to. Because our whole life is centered on Jesus. It's not an afterthought. It's not one, he is not one piece of an otherwise busy life that we live, but we're centered on seeking him, pursuing him, knowing him, and becoming like him as we behold him. So we talk about identity and mission and impact being wrapped up in who Jesus is and who he is to us. And this isn't because we're clever and we've come up with something new here. That's because this is the basic definition of what Christianity is. It's the basic, basic definition of what it means to live out the Christian life in this world. The church from its very beginnings was a group of people who were gathered around the gospel of Jesus Christ, who were called out to be gathered around the gospel and to go with the gospel and carry it into every relationship that they have in life, that we would go bringing the good news that, yes, as as you said in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. That would be the declaration, not just of our lips, but of every, every bit of our lives, it would come out. You're the one I've been waiting for. And you're the one that everyone has been waiting for, waiting to meet you, to know you, and to have their lives turned over by you. The church isn't people who find their identity in what other people have said about us or what we have done or not done with our lives or the things that we're good at or not good at. That's not where we find our identity, but we find our identity wrapped up. Every bit of who we are is wrapped up in who Jesus is and who he is to us, that he's king of kings, he's lord of lords, he's the son of the living God who came, who lived as a human, who died, and who who resurrected, that we would have life and life abundant. That's who Jesus is. And when we meet him, it redefines who we are. That gives us purpose, doesn't it? When we find ourselves in Jesus, that tells us everything we need to know about what we do with our lives and how we live our lives and what we do with our days. And whenever, whenever you find a church like this in any place in the world, in any season of the world, you find that incredible things happen, that impact, impact happens everywhere around a church like this, right? This morning, what I want to do is I want to look back again at, at Acts uh, 6 and 7. It's where we left last week. We started talking about Stephen. And what I want to do this morning is a little strange for me. It's not that strange or out there, but as I was looking at two chapters and thinking, how on earth do I come across two chapters in just a short period of time this morning? What I realized is that this mission statement that we try to live by we try to live up to, if you lay it over Stephen's life, it just fits. You see, what we aspire to here absolutely was true of Stephen, and it had an incredible impact. And we're going to learn a lot about that today. So grab your Bible, turn to Acts 6 and 7. And in Acts 6 and 7, I'll give you a quick review of what we learned last week. We saw Stephen. He was a man who was described as being full of faith. Full. His whole life was on full. He didn't live in low power mode, but he was spiritually full, full of the Holy Spirit, full of Godly power, godly wisdom, godly grace. He was full of faith. Not faith being a small part of a busy life, but he was full of faith and he depended on Christ every single day. And we saw him chosen by the church to serve the church as they basically t- busting tables. He was basically a table waiter, serving widows, making sure that they had 
food. But the way that he did so, he did so in a manner that he wasn't only serving food, but he was also serving justice. Because the early church had a problem in where there was, was an equity and people's needs being met. And so he served in such a way that food was given, but justice was given, and unity was built in the church. And he served in such a way that when people saw him serving, they said, that reminds us of the Jesus who saved us. So when people looked at Stephen, they saw the ministry of Jesus happening through the life of Stephen. And we ended with these couple of verses. This is what we saw at the end of, of last week. The word of God kept on spreading. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, who is full of grace, he is full of power, he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. In other words, there's this church, and they are starting to come apart at the seams because they have some problems within them. But Stephen and a few others who were full spiritually stepped in, and the church was unified when it could have divided, a church multiplied when it could have subtracted, people could have left, and when this church could have been all about me and my problems and, and what I want, instead the Lord was magnified in this church. And so we're going to pick up with Stephen now, and what I want you to see is that all of those things that were taking place, it was the Lord that was doing it. The Lord gets all the credit for the glory and the power and the wonderful things that was happening, but the Lord was doing this through regular church members like you and me, like Stephen, who, rather than living in their own power and in their own strength, their own wisdom, were living full of, or we learned in the New Testament, when it says you're to be full of, it means to be led fully by, who are led fully by the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I want you to see two chapters. We don't have one particular verse that says, and Stephen's identity was in Jesus. That would be too easy. Um, we don't have that, but what we have is two chapters that are just loaded with evidence that his identity was in Christ, that he was definitely living his life on mission with Jesus, carrying out Jesus' mission, and the impact is all over the pages, and we'll see that today. So we'll start here. I'm, the best thing I can do is just like lay out the evidence, and I'll give you seven pieces of evidence that Stephen's identity was in Jesus. You ready? Number one, evidence number one. We don't know a lot about Stephen. We don't know about his mom, his dad, his brothers and sisters. We don't know if he was married and had kids, if he had money, if he was good at his job, or if he was a failure all of his life. But we know that he was full of faith, and full of the Holy Spirit. That's the commentary on his life. You look at verse 5. Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith. That means that everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did, Stephen's heart and his mind and his life was full of it. He was consumed with Jesus. He believes on Jesus. He takes Jesus at his word and he follows Jesus's word, which is obvious when you look at Stephen and his actions and his words as they unfold. That This man wasn't like scraping for a little faith, but he had thrown everything that he was at the feet of Jesus and was carried forward by Jesus. He's full of faith and he's full of the Holy Spirit which can only be true first if you're a Christian. We saw last week Ephesians 1.13 says, the Holy Spirit is given as the seal, the sign of the salvation of those who have come to the end of themselves and trusted in Jesus as Savior. The presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, at work in your life, is only there if you are a Christian. And if you're to be filled with the Spirit, that means daily you are bowing before the Lord and saying, Holy Spirit, you lead me. I'm not going to take directions on from anyone else, and I'm not going to lead my own life. But daily, moment by moment, Stephen is someone who's saying, I'm bending my knee to your leadership. Take me where we need to go, Holy Spirit. He's a man full of faith. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit because, evidence one of him being wrapped up who he was and who Jesus is and is to him. 
Evidence two is this, he was chosen to serve like Jesus. In, in verse three of chapter six, the apostles, seeing this problem that's been brought to them, they go to the church and remember, we're talking like 120 became 3,000, became 5,000, became over 10,000 men, could be over 20,000 people who were involved in the early church in Jerusalem at this point in a city that really only is holding 30 to 40,000 people and then those who are coming in from the vicinity around them. And you have all of this massive mega church happening and the apostles say, you all choose from among all of you a few people to come and to meet the need that's before us and to serve as servant leaders who have the character that makes you convinced that these people would serve as Jesus would have them to serve. And Stephen was at the top of the list. He was chosen to serve like Jesus served, to to come and not be served by the church and say, I'm here, take care of me, dazzle me, but I'm here to serve you, and that's why I've come today. He's, he's like Jesus. He's asked to empty himself and to take on the form of a servant, to hold up the church. And Stephen does so. You can see his identity lies there because he's eager to jump in and serve in this way. Evidence three is this. He's full of godly grace and, and godly power. You see that in verse eight. He's full of grace, full of power. He's working signs and miracles. And signs and miracles throughout the New Testament, whether it was Jesus doing them or Jesus saying to the apostles in Acts 1-8, you are going to do these. And we saw Peter doing these in the previous weeks. Now Stephen's doing it. Every time you see signs and wonders, signs and miracles, what did we say? We said it's an evangelism tool. That God is demonstrating that something that is very easy to him, but he's breaking into the course of the natural world with his supernatural hand to authenticate the gospel message and to prove the authority of Jesus. And Stephen, being wrapped up in Jesus and full of the Spirit, he is going and God is working through him things that he could never have imagined doing on his own, not because he is smart, not because he is powerful, not because he has some trick that he has worked out, but because he is dependent fully upon Christ being alive in him. His identity was in Christ, and so Christ was free to reign and work through his life. Evidence four, get this, he was opposed like Jesus. Jesus came, and he was teaching and revealing who he was, and he had opposition. Religious leaders were his main opposition, weren't they? The Jewish religious leaders didn't like Jesus coming to town, and so they came against him. And the same thing happened for Stephen when his identity was bound up in Christ. Look at verse 9. It says, But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they argued with Stephen. And it's just like when, when Jesus was speaking in the synagogue or teaching in the street, and religious leaders would come against him So Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit and the teachings of Jesus, and people then would come against him. And it's fascinating how it happens in such a way that they are just, they're confounded by the things that Stephen would say when they come to oppose him. They were no match for his wisdom and his truth. And you go back to the Gospels and you look at like Mark 11, and the the religious leaders say to Jesus, on whose authority do you get to speak like you speak? Say the things that you say. How dare you? And Jesus begins to respond to them, beginning to just reveal and unpack a little bit of the fact that he has all authority because he is the son of the living God. He's the king of kings. But the way he begins to speak with them, it says that the religious leaders heard what he said and they were just stumped. They didn't know how to respond to the words of Jesus and they just kind of like, okay, we don't know what to do. We're walking away from here because we're getting embarrassed in public now. 
And then you see it again in, in Mark 12. Jesus begins giving the parable of the tenants. And what he's saying to the religious leaders is, you claim to be serving the living God, but really in the way that you're living your life and the way that you're speaking and what you're teaching, you're just serving yourselves. You are pretending. And it says that they didn't know how to respond to him and they walked away. They were just stumped again. Right? There's another moment in Mark 12 where Jesus is unpacking some more truth about who he is, and it says that they were amazed at the words that he said. And that reminded me of John 7, which is one of my like, favorite little anecdotal stories in the Gospels. In John 7, the Sanhedrin, they send, who are like the Jewish elders council, they have a, a there's no separation of church and state, they have a, a governmental role in, in the Jewish culture. They send the temple guards out to go and arrest Jesus and bring him in so that they can try him and they can accuse him and they can try to put him away. So the temple guards go out to get Jesus and they come back empty handed and the Sanhedrin's like, what are you doing here? And where is Jesus? And they said, you don't understand. No one speaks like this guy speaks. They're just blown away. And then you get here to Stephen, who his identity is in Christ. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Stephen comes with wisdom and with grace. He's attacked by antagonistic religious leaders. They rose up. They argued with him. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen's not like, like this highly educated, brilliant guy who's always going from town to town debating rhetoric and philosophy and, and theology. He's just a church member. He's just a church member who's so full of the Holy Spirit that when he speaks, the words of God come out and they can't contend with what he has to say. He's opposed like Christ, and yet because he is wrapped up so much in Christ, when he speaks, the word of Christ comes out by the power of the Holy Spirit, and those who seek to tear him down don't know what to do with the man. Not only is he opposed, then he's accused like Jesus was accused. And it's ironic, not really ironic, it's just reality. The same kinds of people, even the same body of people who were most often accusing Jesus began accusing Stephen in a, a legal kind of way, trying to put him away. I'll lay these side by side. Mark 14, 57. Some stood up, and basically some were paid to give false witness against Jesus. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And they're taking this literally, that he would tear down the temple. Then you pick up Acts 6. Same thing happens. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. The words and the teachings and the heart of Jesus so inhabited the life of Stephen that he could only be accused of the very same thing that Jesus was accused of. It wasn't some sidebar weird, like, this is my, this is my soapbox that I'm going to get on before you. No, the words and the message in the heart of Jesus emanated from him in such a way that all they could do was accuse him of the same thing that they accused Jesus of. And the amazing thing in this story, he's sitting here, he's getting like, dangerous threats against his life because if he says the wrong thing here, that's what's going to happen. They're going to take his life. But Stephen, steadfast in the Lord, filled with the Spirit, he is set apart like Jesus. This is evidence number six. Remember the moment where Jesus is before Pilate. He's been arrested. He's about to head to the cross and Pilate's giving him a chance and he says, so you say that you're a king. 
Jesus says, you've said so. And Pilate says, okay, I'll give you another chance to get out of this. You say that you're a king, right? And Jesus says, yeah, but my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus was trying to help Pilate understand what he'd been trying to help everyone understand, that there is something much more going on at all times than that with which you see with your eyes, right? What we see through a, a glass dimly, we will one day see with clarity, with one day, the things that we've only read about, heard about, and had to have faith to believe, we'll see physically that these things have been going on all along. You see in this moment that Stephen understands it. He knows that this kingdom of which he is a part and his king is Jesus is not of this world. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. It's more profound and more real even than the kings of this world. And he feels absolutely in the face of threat and danger. He feels absolutely secure with King Jesus and the kingdom that he's a part of. This is weird. Verse 15, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. That's weird, right? It's really strange. And it's not poetic like they're trying to say he's really, really good looking. They're not saying they looked at him and he was the most beautiful man alive. It's not poetry like this. But there was a physical thing that was happening. There was a thing that God was doing that all took note of. And it's fascinating to me to think about this. The Sanhedrin, who are Jewish elders and council members, people who would know the story, the history of the Jews, the Hebrews, they would know the law, they would know all of the stories about Moses. I wonder if just one member or two members of the Sanhedrin might for just a moment, as they saw whatever was happening on Stephen's face, if one of them might have thought back to that story about Moses when he came down from the mountain where he'd been meeting with God, and he came down from the mountain, and it says that his face was shining. It was a supernatural thing that God had done on Moses that declared to the people, this one belongs to me, and he goes with me, and where he goes, I will take you. It is me that is leading this man. Trust him. I wonder if one, one member of the Sanhedrin might have just had that moment and thought, gosh, we're accusing him of breaking the law of Moses, and yet... It's a lot like that story we used to hear about when Moses came down from the mountain. Warren Wearsby thought this. He said, it's as though God was saying, this man is not against Moses. This man is like Moses. He is my faithful servant, and he is like my son whom you killed. Stephen's life was so wrapped up in Jesus that when he was opposed and when he was accused, God broke into the natural and said, I'm going to prove to you this one belongs to me, right? It's like the moment of Jesus' baptism when Jesus comes and he goes before his cousin and is baptized and he comes out of the water and the Father's voice speaks out. The Spirit descends like a dove and the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It's like the moment on, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up there and really words fail because they go, he was really bright, because for a moment, humanity was peeled back, and when they saw the glory of Jesus and words failed, they couldn't describe him. And they said, let's just stay here. It's good to be here. And then they heard the voice of the Father from heaven say, this is my son. Listen to him. This is a moment. This is an important moment in the life of the church. And Stephen, just a regular guy. He's not an apostle. He is not Jesus, but his life is bound up in Jesus. And in the face of accusation, it's as if the Father is saying, Listen to him. 
listen to him, which is important because most of the, the rest of chapter 7 is a sermon from Stephen. There's a lot that they should listen to. Evidence number seven is that Stephen was full of grace and he was full of truth like Jesus. Full of grace and full of truth. Now the grace part, we saw a lot of this last week. We saw that he was so full of grace in the way that he served and the way that he lived among the community of the church in Jerusalem that even hard-hearted priests, it says many, a great number of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. These who had rejected Jesus, those who had who had persecuted Jesus, those who had crucified Jesus. They saw the servant leadership of Stephen who would bend his knee in the beauty of the church that would be unified around this. And a great number of the priests were turning to faith. And yet the rest of chapter 7 is this stinging rebuke against empty and corrupt religious leaders. People who play at religion, but they're what Jesus would call whitewashed tombs. Stephen goes at them. It's a stinging rebuke and the truth hurts so much that they decide they want to put him to death. Here's verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing the very same thing that your fathers did. That hurts, doesn't it? If that's aimed at you, you can see why they want to kill him now. Verse 54, they begin gnashing their teeth at him. They're grinding their teeth in anger. Verse 57, they cut this is just they cover their ears and they rush at him and they begin dragging him out of the city in order to kill him, in order to, to stone him. And then probably the most powerful moment here in, in my book as I read this is in verse 60. Stephen says, as they're throwing sharp rocks at him in order to put him to death, as he's getting hit in the head and the face and in the body, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I don't know what kind of stories were running through the earliest days of the church about Jesus. We know all the stories were circulating from the apostles and those eyewitnesses who had seen different moments in the life of Jesus. And you wonder, on one hand, could it be that the story of Jesus on the cross, those who were stabbing at him and who were hurling insults at him, who were putting him to death when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You don't know if that story was just circulating and in this moment Stephen identified with it and he was like, yeah, yeah, me too. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't count the sin against them. Or that could be fine if that's true. Or is it just that he is so full of the Holy Spirit and his heart is so bound up in who Jesus is. The heart of Jesus is overtaken, the heart of stone, the fleshly human heart of stone. And so even while they are killing him, he's looking out at his killers, at his murderers, and his heart breaks for them because he knows what the Lord has in store for him. And he looks at them and goes, these people are so confused and they're so lost. God, don't count their sins against them. Stephen was wrapped up his mind, his, his heart, his life, his lips. He was wrapped up in Jesus and it transformed everything that he was saying and doing. And, and this, this concept of him being full of grace, full of truth, it's exactly what was said about Jesus. He was the one who was full of grace that did not compromise his truth and full of truth that never compromised his grace. I heard someone say that truth without grace is fundamentalism and it's easy to push it aside and ignore it. And grace without truth it's just sentimentality, and it has no power to it. It's just good vibes and good feels. But Stephen, in the path of Jesus, 
was 100% grace and 100% truth. Not 50-50, not having to figure out which way do I go here, but he was full of grace, and that grace never compromised the fact that he was telling the truth at all times in just the way that people needed to hear it. Can you see how Stephen's life was just wrapped up in Jesus? Like, like I feel like, I told Jonathan James, like, I feel like I'm doing your job today. I'm just trying to pretend like I'm a lawyer, a bad one, by the way. He's a great one, but I'm like, I'm just going to lay out the evidence, and then you decide for yourself. Stephen's life was, wrapped, was redefined radically when he encountered Christ. And when you find your identity in Jesus, that's one of the biggest questions in life, isn't it? Who am I? We're asking that at every season of our life. And every season and every change that happens in our life, we're going, well, who am, I now? who am I now? Who am I now? But when we find our identity in Christ, something roots, something changes, and it tells us everything about what we're to do, which is the second biggest question in life, isn't it? What am I supposed to be doing here? And for Stephen, when he found his identity in Christ, he knew his place was in Christ's mission. Stephen was on mission with Jesus. He's introduced to us, how? As a servant. And, and when you look at Stephen, you go, this guy's a pretty capable leader. Like, he can organize, he can plan, he can get stuff done. Uh, he's pretty solid in doctrine. If you read his sermon in chapter 7, that'll be your homework. I, I can't read the whole thing this morning because the kids' ministry would go wild and kids would take over, Lord of the Flies, and we won't do that to our volunteers over there. So read chapter 7. He's a capable leader. He's, he's strong in theology. He's a great preacher. Like, the sermons we've had so far are Peter sermons. And Peter's an apostle, and we go, oh, the great Peter. This is just a church member who the Lord has called in this moment to declare the truth. And he does it really well. It's the longest sermon in the New Testament that's recorded. That means Luke, as he's writing the history of the church, he says, this is a pretty important thing that needs to be heard for all time. We're going to write this sucker down. This has to be heard, this sermon. So he's a capable leader, good at theology. He's a great preacher. But what's he asked to do? He has to be a, a, a busboy to be a waiter, to make sure that widows had what they need to get through their daily lives. What did he not do? He didn't say, you know, I'm actually a pretty gifted guy. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but I got some talents. And so there may be other people who would do that, but you really ought to find something more in line with my gifting because <laughs> look at me. He didn't say this. He didn't say, you know, I understand there's a need, but I'm actually really busy right now. I've got a lot going on. I've got a little side business happening. The kids got you know, soccer, and I got this, and I don't know if they had soccer. They had all these things going on, and my life is actually pretty consumed with stuff right now, but what I have is I got some cash. So I'm going to give you some money, and you go buy some food and, and, and take care of it and let me know how it goes. Stephen said, if this would glorify the Lord and if this would serve the body of Christ, oh, I'll do it doesn't matter what my talents are. doesn't matter what my spiritual gift inventory said. <laughs> if this blesses the Lord and blesses the church, I'm in. I'm in for this. And this is a heart of service that reflects the heart of Jesus. Doesn't it? Who came not to be served, right? Who emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Right? And I want you to see John 15, how Jesus talked about living life in him and with him on mission what it looks like for someone to, to live like that. In fact, we'll call it two proofs of life on mission. And the first proof is this, fruit-bearing. Stephen lived a fruit-bearing life. John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Stephen was abiding in Christ and Christ in him, and his life was bearing much fruit. The fruit of Stephen's life on mission. We saw last week just some of these things. The church that was starting to pull apart because of division and problems was unified together, and it became beautiful. It became a community that more and more was growing because more and more people are going, that's legitimate. People are denying themselves for something incredible. And so the church was increasing. It's bearing much fruit. And even these hard-hearted, hard-headed priests were beginning to turn to faith in Jesus. It's much fruit that Jesus was bearing through Stephen's life and through his ministry. So one proof of life on mission is the bearing of much fruit. The second one is this. It's being misunderstood and hated. If you're on mission with Jesus, expect to be misunderstood and hated. Stephen was. We saw that. Here's what Jesus said in John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because the world hates you, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, you better believe it, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they keep yours. But all these things they will do to you, not for your sake, not because they hate you, not because you're a bad guy or a bad gal, but because my name's sake, because they don't know the one who sent me. They don't understand. And I have found, and maybe you have found, the thing that Stephen learned the real hard way, that in what Jesus knew and said, that if you really choose to live your life in Christ and every day deny yourself and you, you, you say, Lord, would you fill me? Would you guide me? Would you lead me? Would you help me to speak grace and truth? Would you help me to speak, be grace and truth to the world? No matter how much grace is there, the world will hate you. The world will misunderstand and the world will hate you. And this is as much evidence of Stephen's identity being in Jesus as it is proof of him living his life on mission. And the fact is, nobody really likes this. None of us want to be disliked, do we? None of us like the idea of being hated by anybody. We all, on some level, even if it's buried deep within us, kind of people pleasers. We want to be affirmed. We want to be liked. We want to be in and not, not out. But if you walk around saying, quoting Jesus, that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, life is found in no one else but him, there's no way but the Father except through him, there are people who are going to think that you are narrow-minded. There are people who are going to think that you are dogmatic. There are people who are going to say you are bigoted. And we should always be checking our hearts, examining our hearts to see if any of that is true and if any of that is there. And if we find even the littlest bit of it, we have to confess it and lay it out before the Lord and repent from it. But if we will walk in Christ in grace and truth, there will be plenty of people who say, you narrow-minded jerk. But we have an opportunity to return their hate with good, to love them anyway, to serve them anyway. To ask the Lord for the strength to forgive them. To even at, at the cost of, of the hurts against us, stones, literal probably not, but metaphorical being thrown at us to say, Lord, forgive them for their sins. God, may they see your face in me even in this moment of suffering and pain in my life. And it will make an impact. And I think we do tend to, to grow weary and lose heart waiting for that impact, waiting for that fruit. But Jesus said, Trust in me. Have courage. I've overcome the world. 
he encourages us. I have not stopped working. Remember Acts 1.1? Luke said, these are all the things that Jesus did in my previous letter, all the things he did and said before he ascended, but he's not done. He's still working. He's still speaking. He's still teaching. He's still doing miracles. And he wants to do that through you and me today. And Stephen foreshadowed something that has been given to us now in Galatians. It's powerful. Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? <laughs> if I were striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And Stephen embodied the question and he embodied the answer of Galatians 1.10. And you can see it in, in, the, in the fruit and you can see it in the stones. Stephen living life on mission means there's going to be fruit and there's going to be stones. All right, so his identity is in Christ. He absolutely is on mission. I want to speculate about the impact of Stephen, the impact of his life like that. Stephen's life made a gospel impact on the world. His life, his speech, everything about Stephen made an impact on the Sanhedrin so much that they wanted to kill him, so much that they did kill him, right? He's the first Christian martyr. He impacted the, the Sanhedrin but I don't think that in any way that this stopped or slowed down the message of the gospel. In fact, it probably sped up or validated even more the message of Jesus because he was the first martyr. And so those in the first century are going, people are willing to die for this message of Christ. It probably made them begin to take seriously. This isn't a fad and this isn't a thing that's going away quickly. People are taking this deathly seriously. Stephen's death made others more likely to, to believe. I'm curious about one line, and I want you to look at it in verse 58. This line just had my mind spinning this week. When they had driven Stephen out of the city and they began stoning him, the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is Saul, who would later be known as Paul the Apostle. And if you don't know a lot about Paul, 20 of the 28 chapters of Acts talk about Saul, who would become Paul, and the majority of your New Testament, more than half of your New Testament, was written by Saul, who would become Paul. Here, uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death, and then it goes on to say that he would begin ravaging the church, hauling people into jail, taking people out of their homes, having them beaten, having them whipped because of their confession of Christ. That's later, but now... He's sitting and he's watching. He's watching as every stone hits Stephen's face. He's hitting, watching as, as blood runs from his head. So he's in hearty agreement with this. He'll have a moment when he turns to Christ. He'll have a, a moment where he encounters Christ on his own. But he's here. He heard Stephen's sermon. He heard Stephen's plea in, in some of his final breaths. God, don't count these sins against them. He's a broken heart for them. And you just wonder, even though he was in agreement with the killing, even, even though he would ravage the church before he would turn to Christ, you just wonder if all of this experience he had in this moment was something that was a seed early in the faith of a man named Saul who had become Paul. Uh, Augustine believed that was true. He said, we owe Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Later, you know, Paul would write to Corinth and he would say, it is God who causes all the growth. Make no mistake. But God does use people like myself and like Apollos to plant seeds into water. And you almost wonder as he writes that, is he maybe thinking back to his youth, to his, when he was a young man, and he was sitting there watching Stephen be killed and watching the grace, seeing the face of Stephen that was like the face of an angel. And then even in that moment, if he's, if he's going, it's God who causes all the growth, but I remember there was a man named Stephen and he was a part of the seed 
of my face. And it makes me wonder what their heavenly conversation would have been like, right? And if that's true, if Stephen's life was even the tiniest of seeds and the, the future faith of Paul, then the greatest contribution Stephen made to the kingdom of God was his martyrdom. You see that? I know that Paul never forgot it. In Acts 22, he's talking about his history, about his conversion. And as a part of that story, he looked back and said, and I remember standing there and approving when Stephen was killed. He never forgot that moment. And I know this. I know the way that we deal with difficulty and suffering. It matters. And sometimes the way that you and I deal with suffering and difficulty may be the most powerful sermon that our lives can preach to the world watching and listening to our lives. And so Stephen, his identity was in Jesus. It meant inseparable, his life from the mission of Christ. And the impact is probably bigger than we could realize. His life said, it's not about me. His life said that. He didn't even have to confess it with his lips. His life said that. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. My whole life is centered on Jesus, seeking him, knowing him, pursuing him, becoming like him as I behold him. And it makes me ask the question, what is my life all about? When people watch me and when people listen to me, how would they answer that question? What is Kevin's life all about? What story is your life telling? What is your life all about? Each day when you rise, when you you work and when you rest and when you play and when you interact with friends or your family, your kids or your coworkers, what is your life all about? I look at Stephen, not an apostle, not, not raised up as like this, you know, oh, he's one of the great leaders. That's why we went after him. He's just a church member that reminded some people of Jesus when they interacted with him. And you wonder, where did he get all of this? Where did he get the grace? Where did he get the power? Where did he get the wisdom that Sanhedrin couldn't cope with? Where did he get all of this? So he got it from Jesus. It came from Jesus. It only comes from Jesus. And he believed on the gospel. And, and he continually just beholded the, the work of the gospel. He would behold the work of Jesus, behold the countenance of Christ, and he was becoming like that which he beheld. If anything in him was like Jesus, it's because Jesus was making him like himself. And I know this, God wins in a world through people who say, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. And he's worth it. And in the end, (laughs) I know he's already won. God wins through people who live their lives like that. And the that, the thing that sticks with me this week that I think might be the biggest struggle for us. And I don't mean the church in general. I mean the church, in, in this, the legacy church. I mean us. Is that I've known for the last 10 years, us, me included, to be a church that really is interested in the work of God, fascinated by the amazing things God does in this world, super interested in being a church that's known for being a church on mission, for being a people living their lives on mission. We're super interested in that. It's fascinating to us. But if it remains a point of interest and it never moves to our hearts and cuts us to the heart, we'll never see fruit. The most Christ-like thing that I see in Stephen's life is the moment where he's being killed and he looks upon his killers and he says, oh Lord, 
Don't count their sin against them. Why? Because his heart broke. That they were walking in darkness. And they did not know where it was leading them. That's where I want to be. That's where the good stuff is. That's where glory is seen, and that's where fruit comes from. Can I pray for us this morning? Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in the lives of of ordinary people that you have transformed, you made a movement thousands of years ago that it has not stopped moving. We thank you for your patience because if there was any moment over the last 2,000 years in which your patience would have expired, then none of us would have experienced glory. None of us would have been made fully alive. And none of us would have known the peace and the goodness of God in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would not look quickly and move on from the kindness that you've given us, that your kindness would lead us to repentance. And I mean that not as in just like stopping doing some bad stuff, but I mean turning to Christ to receive all that you want for us and to be made fully alive in you. Help us to turn away from empty answers to the question, who am I? Help us to turn from empty lives that are about short-term goals of things that just pass away quickly and never satisfy completely. And help us to find our greatest sense of self and satisfaction in you. And may you be glorified in that, that we would be living witnesses of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.